So let's. Oops. All right, let's uh, begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in holy baptism, you began your good work in our catechumens and have blessed their instruction and training in your word. We implore you to pour out your Holy Spirit on their hearts and minds so that they will truly love and revere you and confess the faith with joy and boldness. Endeavor to live according to your commandments and praise and glorify you as their faithful God and Lord for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so the topic for today is on God and creation. I'll pull up my notes here. Um, so we, we consider first the topic of God. How do we know there's a God? Well, there are three ways that we know this. Uh, the first way is through external evidence. And um, actually, I'll, I'll just tell you all three and then we'll, uh, I'll break them down. So the first is external evidence. It's from nature. Uh, the second way is internal evidence. That's the conscience. And the third is from the Bible. Uh, that is, so you have external evidence, you have internal evidence, and then you have evidence from, uh, from above uh, coming down. So I'll go into each one of these. Um, we know this from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4. This is from nature, uh, and, and the scriptures say this, Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So, so the argument here is, is very simple. Uh, it's simply that if everything that exists has a cause. The universe exists, therefore the universe has a cause, right? So uh, let me, <clears throat> let me uh, t- kind of break this down for you. If you see a house, you're going to assume that there's a builder, somebody built it, there's an architect. Okay, well, if you see the design of the universe, you're going to assume there is a designer or a creator uh, who has uh, made the universe. I'll give you an analogy here. Uh, For example, take, for instance, uh, this example that you're sent into a jungle where people think, scientists think, that no humans have ever been before. So like a part of the Amazon uh, say you go in there and they say nobody's ever been here before. Uh, we know that they don't know, but they're guessing. Uh, nobody's ever been here. So you walk in and you start exploring, and you're there for days just wandering around, and you find seven rocks stacked up on each other, so just balanced all on each other. Um, what what do you conclude? If you were, y- your first thought is. Well, obviously, somebody's been here uh, because these rocks are stacked upon each other. But if you were forced to believe that there were no humans here and you had to hold on to that, the question is, could you come up with some explanation how that happened, how these seven rocks were stacked up upon each other? You, you could. Um, you could say, I don't know, like a, a bird flew by and dropped one rock And then the wind blew another rock and it went on the other one. And the other one was perfectly balanced on top of that one and that one. Now, you you could explain that. 
But is it reasonable to conclude that? And the answer is no, it, it's not reasonable. You could come up with some sort of explanation if you had to. But again, that's not a, a reasonable sort of explanation. Now, the problem is the universe, the earth, animals, plants, the human body is infinitely more complex than seven rocks stacked up on each other. And we're being asked by atheists to believe that all of this happened purely by random chance over the course of billions of years without any design or purpose or meaning behind it. I mean, just consider the hand, how complex the hand has to be, that all of it has to work together and come together. Uh, consider the eye. What the eye does is it receives light and interprets images uh, and color and uh, light and darkness. Uh, the, the cardiovascular system, the heart, the brain. We don't even, we can't even define what a thought is. With all of our science, through all of our history, all the philosophy, everything together, we can't even say, well, what is a thought? What is it? Can you capture a thought? Can you capture the, an idea? And the answer is no. So we're being told to believe or to, to consider that this has just come about by random chance. And uh, so f the first way we know that there's a God, that you, you consider um, uh, Psalm 8, the eighth Psalm, that says, when I consider the works of the heavens... They declare the majesty of God. So that when you see creation, when you see everything, then you say, well, obviously this had to come from somewhere. Uh, and it's basic. Everything has, uh, every effect has a cause. So what is the cause of everything? Well, that cause is God. Um, then there's the argument from conscience. And we can say that God has revealed himself in this way in, in the conscience. This is an internal evidence. And this is really fascinating because the external evidence we can all see together. But the internal evidence is something that you and I can't see in each other. But we can communicate this. And we all have, every human being has a common experience. And this is the experience internally, that they have a conscience that they feel bad when they do something bad. There's guilt. You say, well, where did that come from? I mean, aren't we totally, completely different people and with our different cultures and different societies and we've never met and we're on different sides of the world. And yet at the end of the day, we know that there's a conscience and we, we feel good when we do good things and we feel bad when we do bad things. Um, that's an internal evidence that we can talk about and realize in ourselves. This is in the scriptures. This is Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that says this, God's law, God's laws are written within them. And he's talking about the Gentiles, not just Christians in the world. God's laws are written in, uh, in them. Their own conscience accuses them or sometimes excuses them. So, the fact that we even have to uh, justify ourselves or we think about justifying our bad deeds. Why? Why can't, we, why can't you just do the bad thing and, and move on? 
Uh, rather, when you're caught, when you've done something wrong, you start to backtrack or justify or explain your words away or something. Where did that come from? And why is it in, in old people that they try to do this? Um, so the argument here is, is simple. If morality is objective, which it is, um, then there must be a common source of that morality outside of man or who we have to say somebody put it there something put it there and morality is objective we find this across all cultures that murder is wrong stealing is wrong Um, now again we have some blurry edges on these sort of things however the majority of the morality is the same Uh, that lying we all agree is wrong a world uh, truth versus lies what's better and we say well truth is better than lies life versus murder what's better well how how is it that we agree on this without before we even talk (laughs) so this is the conscience so the fact that morality is objective therefore something or someone must have given us that morality so let me let me give you four attributes of the conscience four things that we find in ourselves in our own hearts One is that we have this innate understanding that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Uh, Two, that we actually know the difference for the most part. Three, that we know that we should be judged by our actions. We should be judged by our actions and others should be judged by our actions. And four, that there is something judging us. Now, there is something that's bringing you to guilt or to feel bad. <clears throat> so those are four attributes of the conscience. Um, also that there's this idea that we're not alone, that there has to be some meaning or purpose to life. We're thinking uh, that there's something great out there. Uh, just one quick anecdote before moving on. Uh, you guys know Helen Keller. Uh, you can look up the history there. Uh, her father was a Presbyterian minister and he hired a woman to teach her sign language and communicate with her and learn you know teach her things um and one of the first things they wanted to teach her was about christianity but she couldn't speak or read or uh, understand any of these things well uh, her her tutor mrs sullivan one of the first things she started to teach her was about god and Helen Keller signed back and uh, whatever it looks like uh, and said, aha, I knew, I knew it. I knew there was something out there. I knew we weren't alone. Now, this is somebody, right? The, the common argument is, well, you only believe in God because your parents taught you that. But here's a woman who was not taught that, but had this innate sense and understanding and even the, the, the knowledge that there, there is something out there. Okay, well, that's the second thing. Uh, nature, then second is conscience. Now, third is from the Bible, and this is from above. Um, this is what we call the Christian knowledge of God. Genesis 1 is the revealed uh, will of God, starting at Genesis 1 throughout the rest of the scriptures, that in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And we learn this from God himself. So these are the three sources. Okay, now what I want to talk about is within these three sources, 
or um, yeah, these three sources, only one of them is truly fully reliable and two aren't. Uh, the best we can conclude from nature and conscience, there's limits to them, is that there is a God, but we don't know which God, if that is one God or many, or if it, if it is a good God or an evil God, that the knowledge and the conclusions that we draw from nature and the conscience are incomplete. Um, we can come up with certain attributes by looking externally and, and internally. We could say that this God is creative. Uh, we could say that the, this God is uh, maybe impersonal. Um, or sorry, uh, that, he, that he's, uh, he loves beauty, that he's brilliant, he's powerful, he's omnipotent, and all these sort of things. But we also can conclude that this God may be impersonal, unloving, distant, unforgiving. And what, what, where do we draw those conclusions from? We draw those conclusions from things like natural disasters or tragedies or sickness or disease. So when we look out in the world, we see a lot of great things and we say, look, there are the stars and that's amazing. So this guy is really powerful. He's really uh, um, uh, uh, creative. Look at the species of animals. Look at the intricacies of each animal, how beautiful and unique each one is. Uh, the different kinds of animals. But at the same time, we also see a tsunami wipe out a nation of people. So, so which is it? Is he more good than he is evil or more evil than he is good? Uh, is, he, is there one God? Are the gods fighting amongst each other? Um, is this, does this God care about us? So the best you can come up with is from nature and conscience is that there is a God, but you don't know who that God is. Or what he thinks of you. You don't know what to call him. You never really truly know his name. So that's the bottom line here is although you can know God from nature and conscience or know of a God through nature and conscience, you can't know the God or you never really know who he is. Uh, now, this is the difference between uh, philosophy and theology. Uh, philosophy it simply means love of wisdom. And philosophy is man's thoughts and words about God. That's, it's man's search for God. But theology literally means words about God or words from God or of God. And these are God's words about himself, that God has searched for man and revealed himself to man. So with all this being said, uh, the best you can do with nature and the conscience is come up with a philosophy of God. But only through revelation, through the Bible, can you come up with theology. That is, what does God say about himself? Well, then that is true. And that's binding. So then we have to conclude from all of this. Where do we get definite and certain and clear information about God? We get it from the scriptures. So John 1.18, this is kind of referring back to what we talked about in the first class. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has made him known. Uh, God has made himself known to us in Christ. And his, his revelation is recorded in the Bible, which tells us all 
and everything that may be known about God this side of heaven. Uh, and this is the importance of the first lesson that we had. So if you, if you didn't uh, listen, go back and listen to that. Uh, here in the scriptures, we learn that God reveals to, to us not only his name and his attributes, but what kind of God he is. <laughs> so, okay, keep that in mind. Um, any questions on that so far? On how we know there's a God? No? Okay, if there is, just interrupt me here. I want to get into the attributes of God. And we talk about who is God. Well, I have a list of 10 attributes. This isn't exhaustive. There's more, but there's 10 that I could think of and that are listed here. And I'm drawing these straight out of the scriptures. So the first attribute is that God is spirit. Uh, He's not body. He's not uh, animal. He's not an energy. He is spirit. Uh, John 4.24 says God is spirit. And so a spirit is simply a personal being without a body. Um, I can't really demonstrate this to you or show this to you scientifically. Well, this is just a category of things. And, um, and God is this. He is spirit. Uh, so that's the first attribute. The second attribute is God is eternal. And we get this from Psalm 90, verse 2, that says, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Um, I want to make a distinction here in understanding rightly the, the definition of the word eternal. Because we have it in a modified sense and an absolute sense. So, for example, in a modified sense, eternal refers to something that has a beginning but has no end. Uh, And who would that be? That would be us. Or that would be the angels of heaven. Uh, That would be those who have eternal life. Uh, That We have a beginning, but there is no end. That we will live forever. And we'll talk about that later in the later classes. So that's a modified sense. But eternal, that the scriptures use it in this way, eternal in the absolute sense, is something that has no end or beginning. And only one person fits that definition, and that's God himself, who has no end and no beginning. So in this sense, he is from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Okay, so first is that he's spirit, second that he's eternal. The third attribute is that he's immutable. Now this is a word that means uh, unchanging. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, I am the Lord I change not. So that God in his essence, in who he is, what he is, does not change. Now there's an objection here. Usually people will ask this question. They'll say, well, uh, thinking ahead, well, God became flesh. God became, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, So isn't that a change in God? especially since he's spirit uh, and since he's eternal. Well, now he's, he's also unchanging, but yet he becomes flesh. Well, God becoming flesh is not a change in God because God, it would be a change in God if God turned into flesh. If the son of God left his uh, uh, being divine and became human only, then that would be a change in God. But it's not a change in God because uh, 
Christ didn't um, abandon his divinity. Rather, he incorporated the humanity into his divinity. And even more, that was his plan the entire time. It's not like this was plan B. And we'll read about this and when, we'll talk about this when we get to the, the lesson on Christ himself. But that it wasn't an afterthought that God would become man. But rather, this was the chief thing. This was plan A the whole time, uh, which we'll talk about. Okay, so God is immutable. He's unchanging. Uh, fourth, God is omnipotent. So whenever you see this word omni, it means all. Uh, potent is power or ability. That God is omnipotent. Genesis 17.1 says, I am the almighty God, which means he can do what he says. This means that God can fulfill his threats. So if he threatens, he can carry it out. Um, that hell is not an empty threat. But the comfort of his omnipotence is this, is that if he can also, if he can fulfill his threats, then he can also fulfill his promises. That if he says, he says he can give you everlasting life, then he is capable of that. That means there's not, he's not limited. There's nothing he can't do. He's omnipotent. He's beyond nature. He's beyond the laws of physics and reason and all these things. Okay, uh, the fifth attribute is that he's omniscient. First John 3.20 says, God knows everything. Uh, now, this is a kind of a scary and intimidating thought because God knows our innermost thoughts and feelings. And this is bad. This is bad news because when you have a bad thought, then God knows that. When you have bad intentions or motivations, he knows that. But this is also a comfort because, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it this way. Um, nobody really knows you or what it's like to be you or what it's like to suffer as you. Now, even your spouse, even your parents who... who Know, your parents who know you best and your spouse who knows you maybe even better than your own parents uh, through th- uh, time still doesn't know what it's like to be you, to what it, what, it, what it actually feels like. And yet the Lord himself is omniscient and he knows and is fully acquainted with all of our sorrows, right? The things, nobody really gets you. The Lord does. He knows that. He, he knows how difficult it is or how much guilt you feel. He knows how much pain you have, how much regret. He knows exactly. Not, he doesn't have a general idea. He knows exactly what it is to be you. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, he knows your fears. He knows these things, um, which means he also knows how to end them, how to end your sorrow and bring you joy. This is, this is why it says, uh, why it's such a great comfort that he'll wipe away our tears. He knows exactly how to. <laughs> Um, okay, sixth attribute, he's omnipresent. This means he is everywhere. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 34 says, do, do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. Now, I want to clear up something here. It's not simply that God is large, that he's really, really big. And so like right now where where his where his leg would be. And if you're in Africa, that's where his other leg would be. And his arm is in Asia. It's, it's not that it's not that God is enormous. It's his omnipresence means that he is truly 
at multiple places at once in a way that I can't even, I can't comprehend or even explain well, that he is fully and completely present in this table and fully and completely present in the wall at the same time in confined in one space without being multiple uh, gods and yet being the same guy. I mean, it's, it's really uh, an unbelievable thing. It's not that, that he just takes up space through enormity, but whatever size he is, he is the same size in all things. This is omnipresent. This is an attribute only of God that he is everywhere. Okay, uh, seventh attribute is that he's holy. Leviticus 19 verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God uh, and I am holy. And what that means is that God is sinless. That also means God hates sin. Um, everything has the potential to do evil or be used for evil. But God is the exception in that he is entirely incapable of sin and entirely incapable of evil or being used for evil. This is, he's unique in this sense. Everything else can, can be turned bad except for God. He can only be good. He can only be holy. Uh, the eighth attribute. <coughs> the eighth attribute that we see in the scriptures is that God is just. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, just and right is he. That is, he gives people what they deserve. Um, he is not unfair in anything. Now, the ninth attribute, I want to talk about this, is 1 John 4, 8. And it says that God is love. That God is not only loving uh, but that he is love, as First John 4 says. Um, and this is where we have attention. Because in loving, he does not give everyone what they deserve. That he is just and fair and gives everyone what they deserve. And that at the same time, he is loving and does not give people what they deserve. See, this is a contradiction. This doesn't make any sense. How could he be just and merciful? Uh, and we're going to talk about this when we get to the to the lesson on Christ. I think it's uh, four, five, and then when we get to justification as well. And I want you to hold this tension in your mind. Don't try to resolve it yet and don't say, well, uh, he's only just or he's only love. How can God be both? We, we will see this in the person of Christ. Okay, uh, 10. This is the final attribute that I'm listing for today, that he is faithful. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So, in other words, if he says something, he will do it. And he cannot lie or deceive. He will keep his promises. It, it, it's impossible for God to say something and not do it. <laughs> this, is, this is an amazing attribute. Again, everybody will let you down. Everybody will lie or deceive you at some point or not measure up to their words or not let their yes be yes or their no be no. But not God. God is the only one who his word is just as good as if he had already done it. A promise is done in him. Okay, uh, those are the 10 attributes of God. Um. And I know I'm going through this in blazing speed. I'm going to be sending you some of the notes here as well. 
Um, but I want to talk about this, <clears throat> the, the nature of God or who God is in his essence. Uh, who is the only true God? Well, we see another sort of tension in the scriptures. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He is one Lord. And at the same time, Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we have a tension here. Uh, Deuteronomy says God is one. And now in Matthew 28, we have uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I want I, I know we oftentimes hear this verse and we just kind of gloss over it and it seems very um, common and familiar to us, and it is. But this is bad grammar. Matthew 28, 19 says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What should it say? It should say, in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that's multiple names. But it says name, singular, and then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So now we see what's going on. I want to show you a few Bible verses in the scriptures that will uh, show you that this is not an, an innovation of the New Testament, but this is something that's been going on throughout uh, all of the scriptures. The first text I want to show you, <clears throat> let me share the screen here. Is Genesis chapter one. So I want to show you this. Let me. Okay. It says, In the beginning, God, and I'm going to highlight all of these, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God um, was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me re-highlight that. Okay. Was hover hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, and I want to stop there. So, um, let me highlight this again. Okay. So you have God. You have the Spirit of God. And then God said. Now, I want you to remember that quickly as we go to John chapter 1. And it says this. Um, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Through what? The Word. And without him was not anything made that was made. So do you see this? So already in the first uh, verses of Genesis, of the Bible, we already see that God is speaking as uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, I want to show you another verse here. Um, this is going to be verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. 
already he's speaking, he's, he's, the word let here in Hebrew is um, allowing for, it, it's one person, uh, one person speaking this. And yet here grammatically it doesn't make sense. Then God, singular, one person, let one person, us, plural, make man in our plural image after our likeness. Uh, already you see that. I want to show you another text. This is Numbers chapter 6 and down to verse 22. And you, you've heard this in church if you've been to Zion. Uh, this is how the service ends. The Lord speaks this to Moses and he says this is, this is called the Aaronic benediction. And I want you to notice something. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I used to think this was just threefold repetition because it sounded nice. But when you start to see this threefold repetition of the name of the Lord throughout the scriptures, it is, um, it is everywhere. And this is not just poetic. This is speaking of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll show you one or a few other texts. Isaiah chapter 6. Um, so Isaiah is in the temple and God appears to him and the angels are there. And the angels called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, I want to explain something here. This is a bad translation. In fact, you guys know the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And it even spells it out this same way. Holy, capital, uh, comma, holy, lowercase, comma, holy, lowercase, comma. So that the idea you get from this is that, well, God is super holy. He's very, very, very holy. But that's not what the Hebrew says. In fact, it's better translated as holy one. Comma, holy one, capital, uh, comma, holy one, comma, is the Lord of hosts. So that there's three holy ones, and then the verb here is, is, that is singular. Holy, 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 holy one, holy one, holy one is singular. And we know this even more because look at verse 8 of chapter 6. It says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, singular, and who will go for us? The, the, this, isn't, um, uh, uh, th this isn't us. He's not sending Isaiah on behalf of the angels. He's sending uh, Isaiah on behalf of himself. And we know this when you read the rest of Isaiah. And he says that the Lord says these things. So whom shall I send? He speaks singular. And then who will go for us? Plural. Uh, again, I want to show you one more text. Matthew chapter 3. Again, I'm, I'm just highlighting a few verses here. And I know I, I, I feel like I'm just rushing through this. There's so much to say in, in this short amount of time. But uh, John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, Jesus is baptized. And verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, he's in the water. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, 
this is my beloved son. So who is the one speaking? It's the father because he's saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In the baptism of Jesus, we see the son, the spirit, and the father speaking, uh, all present at one time. Okay, with that being said, I want to show you real quick a few heresies, Trinitarian heresies is what we call them, that um, we hold this intention that the, the scriptures say that God is one and that he is three, and we don't pit that against each other. We say, if that's how God reveals himself, then that's who he is. There are errors when people try to interpret or understand or explain how this works, when in fact, we can't. Uh, and I'm going to show you one um, one diagram here. And I'm going to send this to you guys so that you can look at it in more detail. But this is uh, Trinitarian heresies. Uh, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. And there is one God. So these are three foundations, three things that are uh, fundamental to this. There is only one God. Yet there are three divine persons. And each person is co-equal and co-eternal. Without one coming before or after the other. Without one being above or below the other. But they, they are at the same time one and three. And it's, it's an amazing thing. There are three errors. One is called modalism, one is called subordinationism, and one is called tritheism. Modalism, you'll see, I'll zoom in here. Uh, Modalism claims that there is one person who simply appears in three different forms. So you'll say, well, there's one God, but in the Old Testament, he appears as the Father. And then in the New Testament, he appears as the Son. And in the uh, it, it, now, nowadays he appears as the spirit. It's, it's like he's changing a costume or wearing a mask and changing. It's the same guy, but he just pre- presents himself in three different ways. Well, that, that's modalism, but that's not how the scriptures speak because at once they are three and at once they are one. So that's the first error is called modalism. The second error is called subordinationism. And this claims that the The Son and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to the Father. So this says there are three gods and they're differing in powers and abilities and time. So that the Father is the chief God, then the Father creates the Son and the Son is very, very powerful and is a very powerful God, but he is not the same God as the Father. And then that the Father and the Son create the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is kind of a lesser God, still more powerful than anything we've seen. So that there's this hierarchy, Father, Son, and then Holy Spirit down here. Uh, And this too is an error. This is wrong um, because the scriptures don't present them as uh, different lords or different gods uh, or differing in power, but as the same God. Uh, The third error is called tritheism. It says, well, there are three gods and they're all equal, but uh, they are um, uh, they are separate. They are not the same, and so you 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 have to throw out the words of Jesus when he says, "I and my Father are one." 
which we'll get to that later on the chapter on Christ. And this is the, the last error. Uh, again, I'm going to send this to you. This is, this is a really good illustration, and this shows a lot of things. Uh, there's some bad illustrations I've heard in Sunday schools and vacation Bible schools and even parents who are um, misguided or um, uh, don't, don't quite understand this. They try to explain this to children, and they'll use illustrations like, a three-leaf clover to say something like, well, God is a three-leaf clover. Uh, so there's three parts and then there's one God. Uh, it's all one, one plant or one leaf. But there's a problem there because they're separate <laughs> and they all make up part of God, but they're not really God. Um, another one that deceives a lot of people is water, ice, and steam. And they would say that God is like water, ice, and steam, and liquid, solid, and gas. But in order for that analogy to be true, that means the substance of water would have to be liquid, uh, gas, or li- liquid, gas, and solid at the same time with the same substance, which is an impossibility. And then now you've, you've lost the illustration because that's something we, we've never seen before. Uh, the final bad illustration is th- that of saying, well, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a son, and I'm a husband. Well, that's not really who God is. He's not just taking on different roles. He is truly these f- fully God in these three ways, in these three persons, and yet remains one God. So the, the best we can do, the best we can do here is this, that we don't explore the Trinity who God is. We simply adore the Trinity. We simply confess the Trinity. We simply say, this is who God is, and he is beyond our imagination. I'll, I'll put it this way, that the angels are before him day and night, and they still don't know who or what God is. They look at him, and they are, uh, it's glorious. They are joyful, but they are scared, and they are uh, happy, and they are bewildered at what they're seeing. They're amazed at who God is. So if, if the angels of heaven don't comprehend him, uh, we won't. We simply take God at his word and say, well, this is who he revealed himself to be. So that's who he is. Okay. Uh, any questions here on that? I know I'm, you know, speeding through this. Um, again, it's all recorded so you can go back and hear it. I, I want to talk about creation and there's so much to cover here. I'm, I'm pretty certain that we're going to have to cover this next time as well. But on creation now, so we talked about God. I want to talk about creation. What does the Bible say about creation? It says in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. Uh, that's the first, first thing. The second thing is that he created it out of nothing. Uh, this is called ex nihilo. That's a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. Uh, Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 3 says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are seen. So that God created these things out of nothing is another way to say it. Uh, That's the second thing. Now, the third thing that the Bible says about creation is that God created it in six days. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, 
and all that is in them. Um, I, I want to depict this for you. You'll have to imagine this. The six days of creation, don't think of them as a list like this, but as a table with three on this side and three on this side. So the first day, God creates light. The second day, he creates the sky and the water. And the third day, he creates land and plants. The fourth day, he creates sun, moon, and stars. The fifth day, birds and sea creatures. The sixth day, animals and man. And the reason I want you to view it like this is to see that God first prepares like a canvas first, and then he puts the paint or the art on it. That is his creation. So that on the first day, he creates light. And then it parallels with the fourth day where he creates sun, moon, and stars that reflect that light. The second day, he creates the sky and the water. And the fifth day, which parallels it, he creates birds and sea creatures to fill the sky and the water. The third day, he creates land and, uh, land and plants. And the sixth day, which parallels it, he creates animals and man that fill the land and eat the plants. So that uh, they go together. That God is a, So simply looking at that, the way God has created is he, you can tell he's a God of order. That he's structured it in this way. I'm going to put this out there and then I'm going to fill it. I'm going to put the, the sky in the water and then I'm going to fill it. And then I'm going to put land and plants and fill it. Now, there, there's also progression, which we're going to see in a little bit, from lesser to greater. And then you'll see the uniqueness of man, which we'll, we'll talk about. Okay. <coughs> there is a lot of uh, controversy over creation over the meanings of the word day. Day, the word day has uh, three meanings, uh, to be honest. Uh, the first meaning of the word day is a 24-hour period. So um, we say one day, that's 24 hours. Uh, the second meaning of the word day is the day as opposed to the night. So you'll say something like, I worked all day. You're not saying I work for 24 hours. You're, I work during the daylight, right? Is that, that's what you're saying. So that's the second meaning of the word day, which we still use in our day and which is used in the scriptures. So 24 hours or daylight. And the third definition of the word day is a period of time uh, or uh, an, an epoch, an era, uh, undisclosed amount of time. And we use that in a figurative way. We still use that today. When we say back in my day, or in Moses' day, we're, we're not saying one specific day. We're saying this is a, an amount of time. Or in the day of he King Herod, right? We're talking about his lifetime. Okay, now I want to um, say that there's, there's these three meanings of the word day. So then when we read Genesis chapter 1, what is the definition of the word day there? Is it talking about 24 hours? Is it talking about daylight? Or is it talking about a big undisclosed amount of time. Okay, well, I want to give you some um, background and context to this. The word day here is used, like we use in English, in Hebrew, uh, the word day is yom. And there, that's the same word for all three meanings. So you have to understand it by the context. By the context, you'll understand it. Okay, uh, I'll explain it this way. When... 
whenever the word yom, which means day, uh, whenever it's referring to a 24-hour day, there's four clues that we have with it. Four indicators that indicate that it is 24-hour day and not an epoch, uh, an epoch or, um, or just the daylight. The first is this. Whenever the word day is used with ordinal numbers, so first day, second day, third day, um, that's, that's found 410 times in the Old Testament, the word day with a number. That on the, for example, Jericho, uh, the, the, the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days. Seven, there's a number there. Uh, n- nobody's arguing and saying, well, we don't know what the word day there means. It could have been seven million years that they were marching around. No, we're saying because it has the number, it's definitive. Okay, that's the first clue. Uh, the second indicator is that whenever the word day is used with evening and morning, then it refers to a 24-hour day. That happens 38 times in the Old Testament. Uh Whenever the word is, the third indicator, whenever the word is used with evening or morning alone, then it refers to a 24-hour day. And we find that 46 times in the Old Testament. Uh, The fourth indicator is this, that whenever the word is used along with the word night, then it is an indicator of a 24-hour day. Uh, that's used 52 times in the Old Testament. Now, okay, those are the four things, ordinal numbers, evening and morning, evening or morning and night. I want you to read Genesis chapter one. I'm going to pull that up. <clears throat> and with, in every other instance in which the word day is used in those contexts or with those words, not altogether, separately, it means day. I want to read to you Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. And just listen to the way it speaks. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning the first day. (laughs) So in verse five alone, you have all four instances of that in one verse. Uh, So if, so it, it, it would be dishonest to say that the word day used in with those indicators throughout the rest of the scripture means one 24 hour literal day. But then in verse five of uh, chapter one, verse five of Genesis, there it means a figurative uh, amount of time or an undisclosed amount of time. And what you do, what you uh, see in the scriptures is that it says this not only for the first day, but the second day. And it was the second day and it was evening and morning. And the third day, evening and morning. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh day. Oh, uh, seventh. <laughs> um, now, I want to um, talk about this uh, a little bit more because there are different views of creation. There are, um, or of the world, there's atheistic evolution. That is the idea that matter created itself or was spontaneously Uh, brought into existence. This is unscientific. This is unobserved. 
But this is the majority opinion of scientists and people in the world. It's, it's not a slam dunk case. There are disagreements about that. So just to put that out there, not every scientist agrees with this view, but this is the prevalent view and what you're going to find in museums and things like this. What they would say of the age of the earth is that it's roughly 4.5 billion years old. Uh, that the universe itself is about 13.8 billion years old, but the planet Earth is 4.5 billion. So that's atheistic evolution. Uh, the other view is theistic evolution. And this is that God created the process of evolution. So same thing. Uh, we all we, we came from um, uh, there, there's a big bang and then we came from these cells and mutated and evolved where we are, but that God started the process. So you say, well, how did this all start? Well, God did it. He started it. So evolution is true and God is true and we hold both and isn't that nice. We have both of them. Uh, And the age of the earth for a theistic evolutionist is whatever the scientists declare, whatever, um, if they say it's 4.5 billion years old, then they'll say that's what it is. There is a God and the world is 4.5 billion years old. Uh, By the way, this is the official view of all of the liberal mainline churches uh, and also of the Vatican, of the Roman Catholic Church. They believe in theistic evolution, this. Now, there's a third view, and this is creation. This is the biblical view that God created the world as Genesis 1 chapter, chapter 1 says. And this would put the age of the earth anywhere between uh, 6,000 to about 12,000 years old. This is called young earth creationism. That the earth is relatively young. I mean, it's old, 12,000 years, 6,000 years, that's very old. But when you compare it to 4.5 billion years old, then you say, well, that's very young. (laughs) Um, But... But the age of the earth, according to the creationists, toward the biblical account, is very young. And we get this from the genealogies. Now, the, if you say that there's no gaps in the genealogies, you're going to get a world that's about 6,000 years old. If you say there are gaps in the genealogies and some information missing, which, which there's arguments saying, uh, debating that, you could get up to about 12,000 years old. Um, Now, as Lutherans, what do we believe of these three, atheistic evolution, theistic, or creation? We believe in the third one, uh, creation, that the world is uh, uh, as as Genesis 1 said it was created, and that the world is between this 6,000 and 12,000 years old. Um, We don't have an official position or age of the earth that you have to subscribe to, but it's anywhere between this, right? Um, Is it 6,000? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Maybe it's not that old. Uh, There's good arguments for that. But is it billions or millions of years old? No. And that the only reason to make it millions and billions of years old is to go back to that initial analogy I told you about. Uh, You would need time for those rocks to stack up on each other. You need enough time for the chance for that to happen. And you say, well, that's not going to happen over a weekend that all those seven rocks will stack up. So we need a long time for that. Well, the same thing, we're not just going to evolve and pop into existence as we are. We need a lot of time 
So let's throw out a number 14 uh, or, or 4.5 billion years. That sounds like enough chances to get us to where we are. <laughs> so, okay, with all that being said, um, I want to mention also that Lutherans, uh, we believe in evolution, but let me qualify this. Uh, we, because we make a distinction between microevolution and macroevolution. <clears throat> okay, microevolution is variation within a kind, within within a, a kind of animal or species. For example, the beaks of the Galapagos finches, which Darwin observed, some beaks were stronger than others, bigger than others, sharper than others. And this happened slowly through time because of the certain seeds that they were eating. So it makes sense. I mean, think of it in your, in your own hands. If you play guitar, you work with your hands a lot. Your hands are going to become calloused, right? And your hands are going to be tougher and stronger than if you don't uh, do manual labor this way. That's a variation, Within the kind, that's, that's a variation. Or that you're out in the sun for a long time, you, you get a tan. These are minor variations. Or that, that over time, uh, there's certain giraffes that can reach a tree that have longer necks and the shorter giraffes can't reach them, so they die out. And the gene, it's the survival of the fittest, the gene of the tall giraffes is passed down, right? And so what's left, all the giraffes who can reach the trees are tall, and so it kind of varied within that species. So giraffes became taller over time or something. That's true, and as Lutherans, we believe this because it's observed and it's scientific. We can see it. Macroevolution, so micro means small. Macro means big. Macroevolution is the idea of the changing of one kind into another kind. So to say that chimpanzees turned into throughout time humans, that they evolved to humans, or that chickens evolved into a velociraptor or vice versa, that a velociraptor uh, uh, turned into a bird or something like this, that, um, that this is a big jump. This is a change of the kind. Well, something that couldn't fly now flies. Something that couldn't swim now swims. And, uh, or, even more than that, that a dog would become a, um, a bird. <laughs> that's a change of kind. Those are two different kinds. And that's what macroevolution is saying. Uh, I'll give you one recommendation here for you uh, if, you want, if you're interested in this and want to study it more. There's a documentary called Is Genesis History? And it is very, very good. So uh, look that up. I think it's on some streaming services or you can download it as well or watch it on YouTube, uh, is Genesis History. It's very good. Okay, I think we can get through this final part, which is on the creation of man. But I want to stop here and ask if there are any questions so far. Nope. Okay, uh, let's get into the creation of man. And I want to spend a little bit of time here. Uh and tell you that man is unique in all of creation and that there's seven reasons that make man unique in creation. So we saw the creation of the, the sky, the land, the animals, and all these things. 
but there's seven things that set man apart and distinct from all the rest of creation. And the first one is this. And I want to open up the scriptures to you. So this is going to be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 